So there I lay in that bed for the next eight hours with my dangerous thoughts. Who am I now? What's my identity? my wife going to still stick around? Is my son still going to see me as his dad? Do do I still have a job in the military? Can I support my family? I mean, my Olympic dreams are over. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am so glad it's December and this year is almost over. <laughs> and we are closer to a vaccine. Oh, just keep taking deep breaths and move along. Well, we have got a big show for you and uh, because we took a couple of weeks off, we, of course, have a ton of Olympic news, but first, uh, wanted to let you know that we have a new online shop at bookshop.org, so this is a way for us to make a little bit of money because uh, the show is very expensive to produce, and uh, we need all the help we can get, so if you are shopping for books this year, go to bookshop.org slash shop slash pod. And you can shop through our link. We have a few book lists up there. So uh, you can get all of our book club books. And I know some of them are on sale right now. So get those ready for next year. And it doesn't have to be the titles that we suggest. You can buy anything through our link and we'll get a little commission. And that will go to help us defraying the costs of producing the show. And it helps local bookstores. It does. So we are trying to help some independents stay alive because it's been a very tough year financially for them as well. And if you are not in the mood for books but would like to support the show, we always accept donations uh, from Patreon. That's patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And those are ongoing donations. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, go to flamealivepod.com. Click on the support the show link and you can make a PayPal donation. That's a one-time thing. Christmas presents. Uh, let's get into today's interview. We are back with the velvet voice of John Register. I know it. We could talk to him every week. John competed at the 1996 Paralympics in swimming and the 2000 Paralympics in long jump, in which he won a silver medal and got an American record of 5.41 meters. He uh, was also fifth in the 100 meter and 200 meter at Sydney 2000. He's currently a keynote and motivational speaker and does LinkedIn live sessions on Thursdays at 312 Mountain Time. We talked with John earlier this year about running blades and how they work, and now we're talking with him about his Paralympic experiences. Take a listen. John, thank you so much for joining us again. You started out in life doing a whole lot of sports, and you were an All-American in college for athletics at the University of Arkansas. And what were your events at U of A? Yeah, that's a great question. I was, uh, you know how they, the old Adagio goes, Jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, that was really me. I was Arkansas was really a different type of a school at that time for track and field because it wasn't the school we know now as the 42 National Championship School. 
this was really the very beginnings of becoming national champions. And the mindset that goes around with that, I believe, with, with our coach John McDonald, who won you know, 42 national championships uh, and became the most winningest coach in the history of NCAA, the mindset around it was you don't need the best athletes on the team to win championships. You really need a few really blue chipper athletes and then everybody else that can fill roles. And I really was a role filler. So even though I earned four All-American honors, long jump, high, uh, high hurdles indoors, and then two relay teams, four by 400 meter relay teams, that's a big spread, right? That's, you know, a mile relay team indoors, a mile relay team outdoors. Oh, but you're a 55 meter hurdler too. Oh, and you're a long jumper. So I, I kind of filled the role of that for what the team needed. John always, John McDonald always said before the team meeting was if the, and he had an Irish accent, right? He's an Irish guy. He says, ah, if, you, if you, if you have a, uh, if the shirt in front of you is not red, pass him. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Arkansas philosophy. <laughs> so, uh, unless it's Alabama, right? So then, so you, you so it's, uh, <laughs> So that was that became, you know, seeing excellence in, you know, like diversity of we had so many people that had they were good athletes in their respective areas, but I don't think anyone really stood out except for those kind of blue chip athletes like Mike Conley, you know, who went on to win gold in the you know triple jump and long jump and silver and so so one of the greatest doublers in uh in our history and then some irish guys frank omara uh neil o'shaughnessy and you have those individuals who've been to the olympic games and you see that in the south old southwest conference all these olympians and that's really what when that when you're around that you either sink or swim Right. You, you, there's no in between. You have to rise to the occasion because they're going to hold you to that higher standard. And I think they elevated all of us on that team. So having that background of sink or swim and you got to rise to the occasion, did that I, I muscle memory for the lack of a better phrase help mm. you later on after your accident? I, I believe so. I, I think that muscle memory of never yield, never quit started because you know, getting uh, cemented at that time where you could be down, you know, and you're it's at your last jump and you just figure out a way to make it happen. You just you just do it. And it's I think later on in life, you know, we have these moments that challenge us and we have to. And that's that definitely was a resilience builder. <clears throat> and for me, later on in life became resilience building but I had something to pull off of, right? I had, I had, I had exercised the muscle. So because that was exercise, I think I got through those challenging moments faster. And the idea that the flexibility as an athlete to put you in different categories was already part of your athletic career. Right. And, and remember before I arrived at the university of Arkansas, I had played other sports including, you know, I swam, you know, it was like one of my first sports that, that I was in. But also, I was more of the well-rounded person because, you know, I, I played cello in the orchestra. 
I sang in the choir. I was in Barbershop Quartet and in Scola Cantorum and the Magical Group. And we went around the city of Chicago and and sang to different places. So I was always kind of on stage and, you know, performing. And at the same time, I had a, a, a really a great passion for like mathematics. I could never do it, but I just had a passion for it, right? It was like, I could, it was, it was always about trying to figure things out. And, and I still, I still struggle with math, but it's, it still fascinates me of how you make something come together and, and, and have an equation that, that you can actually lick and you can, you can beat at the end of the day. You did go to two Olympic trials. Yes. Qualifying for the Olympic trials. How was that for you? What, how, how did that go? So the first time I qualified, it was, you know, I was, I'd run track for Arkansas. So it was kind of a given, right? I'd, I'd already made the qualifying standard. It wasn't really the highest goal I had at that point in time in my life. My goal was to get out of school. I wanted to graduate. So that really took precedence over anything else. I figured I could do the Olympics another time, but I did go to the Olympic trials under Tyson's, Tyson's foods. So I had a big chicken on my on my sh- shirt. <laughs> and that was all because of Mike. Mike was, Mike Conley was sponsored by Tyson's food. And so he brought a lot of athletes on board together. So I was a part of that, that squad. And I long jumped and I ran the 110 meter high hurdles. And then I joined the military. So I, I wanted to continue that athleticism. And so with the world-class athlete program, I got into that, but it was, I only had uh, a little less than 12 months, little, maybe a little longer to train for the 1990 uh uh, 1992 Olympics for Barcelona because Operation Desert Shield Desert Storm came in. And I went and I served six months in the Gulf War. When I came back, I no longer could run the high hurdles. I was slow. I was, um, the rhythm had gone and I, it was, I just spent too much time away. So I switched to the 400 meter hurdles. And the second time I ran, kind of like the first, this time I knew I deserved to be there, but I was in this new event and it was just too new. I knew I, I couldn't, I wasn't going to make the team. However, I was, I knew it, this was my event, the 400 meter hurdles. Uh, then I was stationed in Germany and trained on my own in a, some German track clubs. And I wound up really becoming pretty good in the 400 meter hurdles. And when I got back to the United States, 1994, I ran my first sub 50 second hurdle race. And Ed, the great Edwin Moses said I was on the same trajectory that he was on. And, and I knew, because I, I, in the 40-minute hurdles, the race is already planned out for you. So I, so as long as you're in shape and you can run the, the, the distance and with the speed, I knew I could run about a 48.5. You know, that's probably what I could tap out at. That's what I thought. And I, I, I thought that was good enough to make the Olympic team, right? Wouldn't have set a world record, but I thought that would be top three U.S. And that's what I was really vying for, was to make top three. Every year I was going to try to get, you know, 0.5 seconds, half second faster. And I thought it was, a, you know, a, a great goal to have, but, but then happened May 17th, 1994. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> and that was the day life changed. So at five, at five in the afternoon, I am preparing for a race the next day at Hayes, Kansas. I'm on the army's world-class athlete program team. We have a, we have a, a inner service championship coming up uh, in a couple weeks. And it's kind of our last meet. I've just run my first sub 50 second hurdle race. USA track and field news has just pinned me as one to watch. I'm top eight in the United States at the time, top 20 in the world. And uh, at that, at that point in time, you know, things change over seasons, but, 
at that point in time, that's where I was. And I was feeling really good and trying to set my race for the next day. But the wind was blowing really hard in Hayes, Kansas. And I was having problems with my steps. And, you know, in the hurdles, there's a pattern in the 400 meter hurdles. And the pattern generally is 21 steps to the first hurdle and over with whatever your dominant leg is. Usually the left leg for me was the right. And then you run 13 steps for as long as you can. So for me, there's always down the back stretch. So the first hurdle comes in at 45 meters. The subsequent hurdles in the race are 35 meters apart. And so the pattern is 21, 13, 13, 13, 13. That's what I would, that's what I would do. And then I would switch to 14 steps to go over my left leg when fatigue started coming in. And I would hang on to another 14 steps to go back to my right leg and then finish the race with 15 steps on my right leg, dominant leg coming in for the rest of the race. And that equaled my 49-8 hurdle race. But the wind's blowing hard and haze that day and I'm having trouble with my steps. I'm getting 21 steps, 22 steps to the first hurdle, getting 13 steps, 14 steps to the second hurdle and, th and third hurdle. And sometimes in hurdles, as in life, you just want things to stay the same. So I did my one last proverbial pass and I get in the blocks and I come out. I'm going about 19 miles an hour. First hurdle, boom, right leg leads. It's great, 21 steps, I'm on. Second hurdle, 13 steps, great, I'm on, right leg leading. I approach the third hurdle and I feel that Kansas wind kind of push me in the lane and push against me, but I determined I pushed back against the Kansas wind, but I realized about uh, six steps out, I was gonna be short and have to take the hurdle with my left leg, but no problem. I've done that hundreds of times before. So off the right leg I go, cross the hurdle with my left leg, leading, and I hit the ground and I hear, and my whole body sails and twists in the air. And I see my left shin pass in front of my face. And my shoulders hit the ground and I bounce to a halt. So I did a quick once over my body. Okay, my shoulders are okay. My, my waist is okay. When I saw my knee, the patella kneecap had risen three inches up my femur bone and my left leg was now canted across my right leg with my foot touching the black surface of the track. And in that moment, I was like, the only thing I could think about was just get up. Just get yourself up, John. Just just push, just just get up, push yourself up. Get yourself up, John. Come on, get yourself up. Get you, you can do it. And I was like, oh God. And 90 minutes later, as my teammates were holding me and consoling me and singing songs to keep me calm, 90 minutes later, the ambulance came, put me in the back, whisked me off to Hayes Medical Center, where a doctor in a white lab coat came in, take one, took one look at me in my leg and said, Mr. Register, looks like you got a bit of a problem. I'm going to have to fix that. And he bore down on my crooked leg, grabbed the ankle and right around underneath the knee. And said, we're going to do this on three. One. And my leg ballooned up. I passed out. And the next seven days were a blur. And I went from Hayes, Kansas to Wichita, Kansas, Hayes, uh, the Wesley Medical Center, where uh, after seven days of vein graft surgeries and trying to reconstruct an artery because my artery had been blocked in the fall. 
the doctor, Randy Mullins, he said, you have a tough choice to make. You can either keep your leg and use a walker or a wheelchair for the rest of your life, or I can amputate your leg and you can walk on a prosthetic for the rest of your life. You know, what kind of choice is that? So it was really my, the pain that spoke first because my male deductive reasoning said, get rid of the leg. I get rid of the pain because the pain was tremendous. And, and I, when I woke up from the surgery, it was like 11 o'clock at night. There was no one around me. My wife was over at the hotel. Um, they told her to go home because I was sleep through the night. My son, John Jr., five and a half years old, he's over there too. My mother and father-in-law are there. And I woke up and I, I wanted something to just knock the pain out because I was in more pain than my male deductive reasoning had reasoned. And I reached over for the little morphine drip button, but I was too weak to roll over in the bed to reach it and depress the button. So I thought I would call out to the nurse's station I could see them right outside my door, rustling around and messing around outside the door. But those tubes that had been down my throat made the sound to an audible to get their attention. So there I lay in that bed for the next eight hours with my dangerous thoughts. Who am I now? What's my identity? Is my wife going to still stick around? Is my son still going to see me as his dad? Do do I still have a job in the military? Can I support my family? I mean, my Olympic dreams are over. Eight o'clock, Dr. Randy Mullins walks back in the hospital room and says, after taking one look at me and seeing I've done a 180 degree shift, he said, we need to call your wife over here. So he immediately calls for Alice. This saint of a woman who kept this from me, who's managing me, John Jr., mother-in-law, father-in-law, has just found out that morning um, that the job she's working on in Arkansas, we were we were separated at the time because I was I was living in Germany. And we didn't have command sponsorship, so for the, with the military, so we were apart. And she had a job working at this nursing facility, and she just got a call from them that morning, uh, about an hour previous, that she was just let go because she had been gone for too long to care about me. And so she came over. T- took them 45 minutes to get me out of the bed into a wheelchair wheeled out to an inaccessible playground where I was parked in front of the wood chips and uh, was kind of just forced to watch my wife and my son play on the swing set. And I couldn't push myself out of that chair. It was the first time I ever felt devalued, dejected, and disabled. And I lost it. I started crying uncontrollably. And Alice saw me struggling and she came running over and she said, what is going on? And I began to articulate to her everything that was going on in my life the night before when I was thinking about my fears. And then she said the words that really stopped my downward spiral. And she just said, you know, you know, John, we're, we're going to get through this together. It's just our new normal. It's just our new normal. And when she spoke those words, she really baselined my entire existence. And uh, then I see through the tears, I'm pushing back. John Jr., he jumps off the swing set, hits the ground, comes running over. Hey, dad, mom, dad, dad, mom, you see my big jump? You see my big jump? And I realized in that moment, he had just validated me as his father. And he had created his new normal. And that's exactly what I had to do. So I know it's a long way to get around to what I was feeling and going through and experiencing But, you know, the journey really is when we go through life's traumas, I think we all experience some type of that fear 
and of being isolated and alone, especially when athletes have injuries and you know their teammates go on and they're still running and jumping and throwing and batting and fielding and kicking soccer balls. And you're on the sideline kind of forced to watch. And you don't know when you're going to get back into the game or if you can get back into the game. And that's, that's uh, you, you begin to think about your you know, mortality in that, in that sense. So that's what I was feeling at that point. And that the, the words of Alice just really lifted me to say, I could have a different state. And so I, now when I talk in presentations, the new normal, my kind of keynote address, it's not about returning to a previous state because had I overcome the amputation of my left leg, I'd have my leg back. So it's really about, and it's, it's not even about a destination, right? It's not like, I, I, I guess we're going to get to the new, I, when things get to the normal, when things get back to the normal, I guess it'll be a new normal. So that's not it either. The new normal really takes the philosophy that new defi- defined as no prior point of reference. So let me not think about what my past was and let me focus on the current situation I'm in right now. And then the normal is the everyday typical occurrence of a thought or an action. So if that's the case, what am I doing every single day that is going to elevate me to a higher existence? We find it in the Olympic motto of Sidious Altius Fortius, swifter, higher, stronger, where those words, those Latin words, when translated into English are not written in the superlative of the word. It's not swiftest, highest, or strongest. But we can have our best performance today, and with that ER stem ending, we can be better tomorrow. We can be the swiftest today and swifter tomorrow. We can jump the highest today and jump higher tomorrow. We can lift the heaviest weight tomorrow and lift heavier weight tomorrow. And that's where we should be in the new normal, is that if Olympians are and Paralympians are training four years from the day that the way they're training today, they've already lost the gold medal because they're innovative. And they're looking at ways to best the competition through competitive advantage. And I think they have, athletes have a, a lot to teach society with that. If we can understand it ourselves of what we're actually accomplishing, how fast we, we take feedback from coaches and then implement it. And that implementation comes into uh, failing fast and making sure that we give ourselves the greatest opportunity to succeed on the field of play. So when in your rehab did you feel like you were getting back into the game and feeling more like your athletic self that you, you were? Yeah, it took a while um, because I wasn't really thinking about athletics. I was really thinking about existing, right, in this new state. I was, I was trying to accept who I was based upon how others were perceiving me to be for them. Because oftentimes people will place on others what they believe is possible for that person based upon how they think they would show up if they were in that person's situation. Other people believe for me what I could or could not do, in other words, based on what they believe they could or could not do if they were in my situation. So it was all about them, right? Being comfortable with who I was and my identity. But then I'm still, I'm buying into that because I want to be accepted and valued and appreciated in that space. And it doesn't necessarily have to deal with sport. So to get to the question, you know, of sport, the swimming for physical therapy was when I really started not thinking about I could make a Paralympic team because I didn't even know what that was, but it was to get my body to a back to a health and active lifestyle. And I figured if I get my body back into shape, then I could start making the next moves of life. And can I 
you know, get a job after military and all these other things that were going on in my head. So what gave you the idea to then move into Paralympic swimming? So there's a woman, uh, she was in, I was swimming at Lee District Park and Rec, and she had a, a disability. And she first told me about the idea of Paralympics. And I thought it was Special Olympics. So I really didn't pay too much attention to it because I said, well, that's for cognitive disabilities. And so I um, so I wasn't paying too much attention to it. Then my coach, Remy Korchimney, told me about it and then went in depth into what Paralympics was all about because he was thinking about running. And I was like, nah, I'm not easy. I can't even walk on this thing, let alone run. And so I met a coach, um, another coach named Mark Stanley, who, who was a swim coach. And he was the, he was the coach of a general officer's daughter and the general officer, Gil Meyer, who I was working for at the time, uh, her, his daughter Talon was swimming at this place. So I decided to go over there and he gave me time to do it, you know, to get back in shape. And that's when I first kind of bit the bug. And, and it wasn't to make a Paralympic team, it was actually to make the Paralympic swim trials. Because I said, there's no way I can, you know, there's, there's only, it's less than 26 months for the Paralympic games and there's no way I'm going to make a games. And so I put out a, a standard to try to make the the, the trial standard, and it was it, it seemed to be okay. I mean, it was like I had to shave like a hundred, I had to shave fifty five seconds off of, off of a um, hundred meter freestyle. So I said, ah, I could probably do that. So it gave me a good goal to reach for, but I was never trying to make a team. The team standard was to make the the game standard was I think it was I don't, I'm going to get it wrong, but for out there, that's, I think it was like one hundred six flat. And when I got to the trials, I actually swam 106.01. And I was I was happy. I mean, I was I was like, oh my gosh, I don't believe I just learned a new sport and almost made the Paralympic team. So I left. I went home. <laughs> and Coach Coach Cal from Catholic University calls me up and says, Why did you leave before the team was announced? I said, Well, because I didn't make it, but thank you don't very much. And I, you know, I have my ice cream cake and I ate it too. He said, Well, you idiot. In the hundred meter freestyle. There is a timer at the 50 meters, and if you are underneath the, the, the qualifying time at 50 meters, it counts as an official result. And you were underneath the qualifying time for the Paralympic Games at the 50 meters in the 100-meter freestyle. And so I made the team, and I didn't even realize that I made the team <laughs> because I of my ignorance. <laughs> so I said, wait, are you telling me I made the Paralympic swim team? <laughs> And I'm going to Atlanta as a swimmer. <laughs> so that was how I, I found out. I was back at my desk, you know, happy. And that's how I found out that I made the, the Paralympic team. Because you swam as a kid, how was it feeling the water and, and stroking with your the, the new leg or partial leg because yeah. you don't swim with the prosthetic? Yeah, it's hard not going around in circles. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Circle swim. Did you feel like phantom leg in the water trying to kick? And incredibly, um, no, I did not. I didn't. Oh. I felt so buoyant and it was liberating. It, it was freeing because the body floats. I don't know if you remember the movie with Carl Brashear, the Navy diver honor uh, men of honor and it was a great movie about carl brashear as a navy diver and and there's one contentious moment where they are concerned about he's he's lost his leg he wants to return to as a, a navy diver and there's one part of the movie where they're concerned that if he 
dies underneath the waves, he won't be able to float right. <laughs> and he says, you know, I, I swear to you, sir, if if I shall lose my life 100 feet below the deck of this boat, I, I will... Uh, I will float right to the top, right? It's something like that. It's something it crazy. But, you know, it's it's like this, the swimming with the, without the limb, you're still a swimmer. And you can still move in the water. I've seen people that had, you know, quadriplegics that all they can do is be on their, get on their back and just move their arms. And there's a competition for them. I mean, that's that's insane. But it's it's such... It speaks such to the the fight of the human spirit that we all love to compete. And no matter where we are, I mean, so you get an amputation and you start competing with other amputees. You get a double leg amputation, you start competing with double leg amputees. You know, it's just we we love to measure ourselves against like abilities. And uh, and who is it to say that we can't do that? So that's the you know, that was the most amazing thing I found in, in the Paralympic world beyond the sport itself was just this community of not only compassion and empathy, but just I'm going to succeed whether you value that or not in your life. So did you go to the opening ceremonies? We always love opening ceremony stories. Yeah. How was it? It was great. Aretha Franklin sang Respect. (laughs) That's an appropriate song. I had just remember I told you I was a singer before, right? So mm-hmm. two weeks prior to that, I was in Washington. I lived in, I lived in Washington D.C. at the time, and at the National Archives, our choir was invited to sing with Aretha Franklin at the National Archives. So here I was singing Aretha with, I just sang with her as backup, doo-wop, doo-wop. and then I was at the, uh, <laughs> then I was at the the Paralympic Games with her, and I and I saw her in the little cart that they pull her out with, and I told her. I, I, I just, thanks for being here. And I just sang with you at the National Archives. And uh, she kind of she looked at me, smiled and said, well, how, how'd it go? I said, it went great. I said, oh, that's good, honey. And then off she went, right? So that was that was it. But that was pretty cool. I was with Aretha twice. <laughs> R-E-S-P-E-C-T. <laughs> so how was the Atlanta experience for you overall? Okay, so <clears throat> Atlanta was not, I don't know how to say this. It, it wasn't what I expected because all of my friends that had made the, the Olympic team were giving me these amazing reports coming from Atlanta, how the village was. Because remember, I, I was destined to make the Olympic team. And so I trained with all the, I ran against Michael Johnson. We beat him in the indoor four by 400 meter relay on the Arkansas team. So I, these were, this was my crew, the Kevin Young and the, um, 400 meter hurdles that set the world record. So I knew all these people personally. And so um, when I got there, I was expecting the same experience. But I'll tell you, uh, this is how we welcome the world in Atlanta. All of when the Olympians left and the new organizing committee came in, the Olympic committee did no favors for the Paralympics. They left all the keys in a box with no labels on them. So you couldn't find a room. You had to go try and figure out your own rooms. All of the telephone wires were pulled out from the walls. Just prior to it, I heard, I learned afterwards that there was the, the Paralympic sponsor for food that had the rights for food that at that games decided that they were not going to supply food for the Paralympic athletes. So that started getting me into why is this so different 
with people with disabilities because I was on the Olympic side of the house and would have been treated with, you know, kid gloves and everything. And on the Paralympic side, I'm treated like, like a bald headed stepchild. And it was, it was really, it was very sad that my country, the United States was welcoming all these people from all over the world at, with this type of capacity. And it was, it was sad. Um, now, I'm not going to discount my experience. You know, you make the most of it, you're in the environment, and so you want to compete and and do those things. But having it compared to, you know, four years later in Sydney, where I was thinking it was going to be like Atlanta, it was totally the opposite. And uh, it was an amazing experience. And they, I felt they really did a great job of closing out both the Olympic and Paralympic Games and welcoming the world to their to their world. Uh, as well as having been to you know, now Athens, Vancouver, Beijing, Torino, and then what was it, uh, Pyeongchang, and seeing, you know, I didn't go to Sochi, but but seeing those games and how inviting the world was, is to athletes, it was really disheartening to see the United States not do that. And so I think we have a great shot at 2028, to really make amends for what uh, what we the world was welcomed into when we were welcomed into Atlanta, or not welcomed into Atlanta, not the crowds. Don't get me wrong, because I think I think that happened at the leadership. I think Andy Fleming and the leadership did as best he could do, but I think there was such contention between Olympics and Paralympics that it really made a kind of nasty nasty little mark on the on the whole movement itself. But you know, Casey Washerman and the folks out at LA twenty twenty eight, I think are really doing a phenomenal job. They got a long runway and I think it's going to be off the charts. Fantastic for everybody. And the merging of the USOPC helps that right off the bat because you know, the leadership is together. They're not at these, the crossroads of the two organizations anymore. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. You know, I think there's arguments as well with, you know, why we've had these with the USOPC, you know, why now? Because for 15, at least for my lifetime, we've been trying to get the Olympic Committee to honor Paralympic athletes in the same light as Olympic athletes. And so why does it happen now? Why, why are the, the equitable treatment of medals? I'm not saying it shouldn't happen. I think, I think it absolutely should. But why is it now? Are we really, are we really engaged in that process? Because you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happening around the USOPC right now, right? And so Paralympians are kind of new to this space of what's fall, the fallout of the, the Dr. Larry Nasser case, or former Dr. Larry Nasser, right? And so now you have that all happening and Congress looking down the, the, the neck of the USOC, USOPC with the fine-tooth comb, and all of a sudden you get equitable treatment of Paralympic athletes and you get a name change. So... This kind of goes back, is this the same thing that we saw with people with disabilities being used as kind of poster kids? So I don't, I'm not saying that's what's happening, I, I, but I do, you know, if you've had 15 years to do it, 20 years to do it, and now all of a sudden we make the turn, it's great, but are we doing it for the reasons that are going to elevate the movement of itself? You know, so we look at leadership and what does leadership look like with Paralympic athletes as a part of that conversation. We have a new vote that's going on right now with members, uh, athletes being you know represented 
at, at all levels of the organization, which I, which I agree 100% is what needs to happen. We have to just kind of keep our eye on the ball to make sure that athletes, I believe that athletes need to have the representation at the highest level, both Olympians and Paralympians. And I think the two are very distinct organizations. So this is just John Register talking now. Because the missions, when you go to a games, are different. So as, think about it, we'll take the greatest, you know, Olympian, arguably, Michael Phelps or Carl Lewis or, you know, um, who's the little, little gymnast now? Simone uh, Miles. Yeah, Simone. So amazing athletes, right? But the conversations after those events are over with the, the fans are very different than Paralympic athletes because Paralympic athletes, once they leave the stands, or once they get back into the stands, usually what happens is somebody that has a person in their family that has the disability of the person that just competed wants to know how they're doing it. What equipment are you using? What doctors did you go to? What physical therapist are you with? How do I how do I get my mom and dad out into society because you know they are living at home right now? Uh, how do we fight for our, our rights and get our government to open up? We don't find that conversation happening on the Olympic side. We find it on the Paralympic side because it touches people where they live because most a, a lot of people in the United States, you know, we're talking those sixty million people live with some type of a disability and the, the population is growing and we want to know how we can exist with this new, what I call, you know, in this, from this, from get becoming ta uh, tabs, becoming people with disabilities. So tabs as TABS temporarily able-bodied individuals is what I, we call them. Uh, so at one point you're probably going to become part of the, the crew uh, in, your, in your lifetime. <laughs> so, and once you become part of the crew, you know, you're like, then it becomes apparent to you that, oh, my gosh, all these things are built for, you know, ableism. And uh, think about if you if you if you break a leg and you're on crutches, how do you get your food in a restaurant? How do you navigate through a door or a turnstile or do people go out of their way to help you? Or do they see you and make you invisible? All these things kind of come back up. And that's what I think the Paralympics does profoundly. We in the United States, we're not there yet uh, when it comes to that. Because uh, Dr. Harry Edwards, sociologist, says really in order to have sustainable change and really elevate, uh, and he was talking primarily about the black athlete, um, 1968 and the kind of the, the almost boycott from 68 games. He said, in order, you know, John, to have three, to have sustainable change, you have to have three things in place. One, you have to have a dependable and a, and a developed pipeline of talent. That's one. So in the United States, we have some talent, but we don't, it's not developed and dependable out there for Paralympics. It might be, you might look at it like badminton, the sport of badminton, right? It's out there, but is it really developed all across the United States? Number one. Number two is you have to have a persistent and pervasive demand. Some group entity advocacy group that's saying that this talent that we have needs to exercise that talent so we can be the best. We can we need to value and appreciate and, and push this talent forward. And then third, the entity that's being impressed upon to change actually has to want to change. 
And when you get that, you get the perfect storm. You get everything, everything aligns and the and the everything can move forward. But in Paralympics, we don't have a pipeline of talent. We don't really have an advocacy group that's demanded the talent that we don't have needs to go someplace. And it's arguable whether we whether we have an entity that's being impressed upon the change actually wants to really change. So if you don't have any three of those things in place, then how can we, how do you then grow it? So that's the question I posed to Dr. Edwards. And he said, you have to build the value of it. And the way you do that is, you know, when you think about football, basketball, soccer, actually women's soccer is a great sport to, to talk about. And that, and then how they built the, the pipeline and they pushed it out into communities and you grow that talent pool up so that now, you know, you're winning, you're winning the world. And they took kind of almost like a European model in which to do that. And so we have to do that in pockets and cities to do that with Paralympics, but we divested of that at the United States Olympic Paralympic Committee. We only focused in on the top level athletes and we got to have, we have to have the pipeline network that is supporting the youth and development so that anybody can choose to, to play the sport. And if they choose to go up higher, they can, but we don't have it built yet. And so that's, I think that's the, the biggest piece of where we need to in, to invest and whether it's USOPC, which I really don't think it's their job to do that, but we have to have some type of network and somebody that is advocating for that to actually happen. School systems and college collegiate systems and not have make resistance from it saying that it's going to cost us way too much. So that's, you know, find the money. Right. <laughs> you got yeah, you got because donors. You, yeah. Cause you have like little pockets of, adaptive athletics programs right. here and there across the country right. that aren't necessarily connected. Interest. One yeah, quick right. question. How does the pressure, I mean, I, I don't want to say pressure. Wait, how does automatically having to be an activist along with being an elite athlete work or not work for, for Paralympians? Does that make sense? Yeah, because I think, like, you know, because, you're talking, because an Olympian just can go do their sport, they can and then they can leave and go do the rest of their life. But Paralympians always seem to have to be an activist for themselves and their sport and for other disabled people. Well, there's a reason for that. And I, and I, and I, I do want to go back to the Olympians uh, and, and other athletes as well. The, the reason for that is because do we do they feel honored, valued and appreciated? A person advocates because they do not feel that, right? So that that's when that's when they have to, they don't feel accepted, and and so my my pitch with the Paralympic athlete, as as well as in other communities, I say why are you why are you demanding status from those who have power? <laughs> you already have the power. Take the, the, the take the power. Don't ask for status from them. Take your power. Be in your power. We talk about this from the this, this, the standpoint of what I talk about in my my module of fear to freedom. It's it's the resolve. It's the resolute. You know, I'm not going to ask you for a handout to help me elevate my status when I have status uh, when I have when I have power because we know that those that have power don't want to give it up or they'll give you out just enough to raise your status enough so you'll be quiet. So that, so that's it. So going back to the Olympians, I think what's what's happening now, and when I say Olympians, now I'm starting to say all athletes, athletes around the world are starting to find their power in their voice. And, you know, we saw it with NBA this year. We saw it with Black Lives Matter. And it's not just, and people think it's just an American thing. It's This has gone around the world. 
with people that are now beginning to try to voice their power. Now they're looking at trying to change, you know, Rule 50, which talks about, you know, how an athlete can show up in an environment in, in protests or not, or show up with their own voice, in other words, right? So that is a, a, a real thing. And, and those that are in power right now that they want to keep the Olympics the way they are. So we're, we might we might give you a few things, athletes, but, you know, know your place. Where this there's a shift that's happening, right? It's like uh, the disruptor of the Uber model or Lyft model to the taxi cab companies. Taxis are like, you know, know your place. And like, no, we're not going to know our place. We're going to take the power from you. So this is what's happening all over our world. And those that don't acknowledge or honor this are going to get run over. <laughs> it's coming. The wave is coming. It's cresting. And when if athletes truly figure out the power that they have, the whole this whole thing's going to change. So well, if John Register is running at you, man, you are going down. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically and realistically. I'm just saying. Thank you so much, John. Check out John's website at johnregister.com. He's also on Insta, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. So we will have links to all of those in the show notes. And if you didn't hear the first part of John's interview, it is episode 157. Who doesn't want more John Register? Just You can just listen to it on repeat and fall asleep to his beautiful voice. All right. Let's go uh, check out what's happening with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. Welcome to Shukflastan. Speaking of John Register, his wife is out of the hospital. Thank goodness. She, coronavirus. John and his daughter also had COVID, but they had mild cases. And his wife is the one who it, it decided to attack pretty violently. So we're glad to hear she's out of the hospital and on the mend. And we hope for a full recovery soon. Claire Egan is starting uh, her biathlon season, and she competed in the 15-kilometer individual and 7.5-kilometer sprint at Contulati, Finland. She placed 35th in the 15-kilometer individual competition and uh, had two misses on the shooting range. And then on the 7.5 sprint, um, she finished 27th and shot perfectly. So good shooting start to the season. Right. She said on Insta she was really pleased with her shooting, but she's trying to get her speed back up. Uh, they are back in Contiolati this weekend as well. John Neighbor was elected as the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Alumni Association rep to the USOPC board, along with Donna Deverona, and he will be serving a two-year term starting in January. So thank you to Rich Perlman for that information. Roy Tomizawa is featured in the new documentary, Tokyo Legacy, which is the story of Tokyo from 1945 to, to 2020. And it's going to be on Japan's version of the History Channel. It premieres on Sunday, December 20th, which I think is very cool. It's got to be cool to get called for those TV documentary sh shows. And you can be one of those people who sit there, as long as he doesn't say it was aliens. I was just thinking, maybe instead of ancient aliens, they can have ancient Olympians, and we could be the crazy people who they call all the time. Oh, I'd need a hairdo for that. <laughs> we can work on break it. Out the, you, you break out the pomade. Set oh, and a wig. And I need the Shuk Lusan headpiece for that. Yeah. <laughs> History Channel, call us. We're here.
John McLeod's short film Conviction about the Steve Gentner story from Munich in 1972 has won a 2020 Award of Distinction from the Canada Shorts Film Festival. That is very exciting. Yes, I'm glad that movie's getting some traction. I am too, and I hope it continues. Marnie McBean has been appointed to the board of directors at Canadian Sport Institute, Ontario. Can you imagine her at a board of directors meeting? She's going to keep them online and on task. <laughs> Perfect. Megan Duhamel and Wojciech Wolski won CBC's Battle of the Blades. So excited. And he threw her and he did not drop her. Uh, the, the throws they were doing, because we can't see it here. With So I've been relying on clips on Twitter. And that throw was amazing. It was serious. They were not fooling around with the lifts and throws they were doing. It was incredible what he was able to pick up in such a short amount of time. Their prize winnings will go to supporting the Sandra Schmierler Foundation that helps premature babies and their families, which Megan benefited from when she had Zoe, and the Hospital for Sick Children Patient Amenities Fund. And CBC Gem is also streaming a short documentary on Megan and her Paris partner, Eric Radford, called Beyond the Limits. So check that out if you are in Canada. And then finally, congratulations to Jake Dalton and his wife, Kayla, on the birth of their daughter, Luca Rose, on November 26th. Mom, dad, and baby are home and doing well. We're always so excited for a Shukvastani baby. That's right. How long before she's swinging off the crib railings, though? With those oh, I know, we're crawling out of the crib. <laughs> Just hanging from the, from the sides, <laughs> flipping over. <laughs> Let's move on to Tokyo 2020. So Nikkei Asia is reporting that Tokyo 2020 could have big crowds. This is new and exciting. Uh, they say that vaccines will not be mandatory and visitors who submit a proof of a negative coronavirus test and agree to use apps to facilitate contact tracing can skip the two-week quarantine. And it would allow visitors to go on public transportation as well. This doesn't sound like a good idea. <sighs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you have a negative test, you get in, and I, I don't know. I don't know if it sounds like a good thing. It, it gave me a glimmer of hope that we'd be able to go. But I don't know. But I want you to come back alive. I do, too. <laughs> I do, too. We also don't know if authorities are going to have capacity limits on the venues so there still could be restrictions on visitors as they say venues can only be half full well if they sold out of tickets half of those tickets have to go away that should be just decided next yeah it's one of these things where we really can't make any decisions more than a few weeks ahead of time and yet you need to make decisions far ahead of time and yet Corona makes it impossible to do that. So we're all looking for these small glimmers of hope, but we can't count on them because it's such a rapidly changing situation that none of us are very flexible about because we don't like that. In the Olympic world, we like to know what's happening. I mean, for goodness sakes, we're talking about picking a city for 12 years from now. Right. So we, we are not the most flexible bunch. No. And and Tokyo could still say some countries are just not going to be allowed. Like we're having huge surges here in the U.S., which are 
really bad. And I, I don't know if, if that continued and we didn't have enough widespread use of the vaccine, we may not get to go. Who, who knows? But that, that's a little glimmer of hope. Athletes will be regularly tested, though. They're supposed to be tested every four to five days, even if they don't show symptoms, which is interesting because if they get tested, but they say visitors don't have to be tested, they just have to be kind of tracked for contact tracing, you're, put, you're really taking a risk and putting yourself out there if you're a visitor. Absolutely. With all the COVID talk, we do forget that the heat talk will come back. And, and maybe people who were on the heat beat and had to go to the COVID beat will be excited to get back to the heat beat and write about it but open water swim time moved up again it was at 7 a.m and now it's been moved up to 6 30 a.m and that should end by like 9 10 so plenty of time for them to get this done and everyone out of the water before it gets too hot why don't we just have it overnight at like three in the morning <laughs> could do it in the dark it'll bring a whole new level to the competition there you go and Tokyo 2020 has also uh, proposed a new test event schedule. So they're going to have 18 test events with overseas athletes invited for artistic swimming, diving, volleyball, gymnastics, and athletics when they can. Events will kick off in March and go through about May. There's going to be a marathon test event scheduled for April or May up in Sapporo. Speaking of heat. Let's just move everything to Sapporo and start throwing people in the water. Well, hey, speaking of water, the Olympic rings are back in the bay. Remember, they took the rings that were floating in the bay out for maintenance and safety. They brought them back on December 1st, and they will be lit up every night until after the Olympics. I really hope they do something with the rings where people get shot through the ring. <laughs> Like some sort of water event where a water skier can jump through the ring. This was reported in Inside the Games because this little tidbit I was not aware of. Once the Olympics are over, they're going to replace the rings with the Paralympic symbol in mid-August and have that there until the end of the Paralympics. Oh, nice. But why don't they put that out there now? Oh, yeah. It's I mean, a big bay. It, <laughs> it's a big bay. I mean, that's the symbol there is really to increase awareness of the Olympics and get people excited. Why not increase some awareness of the Paralympics? You got to have two barges floating around. I mean, an extra barge floating around somewhere. Especially right now. I mean, who's barging right now? <laughs> right. Uh, let's move on to Beijing 2022. There's a lot of stuff going on with Beijing's test events in terms of them getting postponed or canceled. So recently, Luge, Bobsled, and Skeleton all canceled their test events. And then Figure Skating canceled the Grand Prix that was supposed to be a test event, but they're going to have something modified later in the year, hopefully a few months before Beijing 2022. For the, the track sports, though, those athletes might not get a chance to practice on that track until they go there for the Olympics. That could be interesting. That could also be dangerous. Very, yeah, very interesting, very dangerous. Inside the Games is also reporting that the ice cube renovations are finished. So if you remember, they took the Beijing 2008 water cube, which was the swimming pool venue, 
and uh, they fitted it out with an ice rink for curling. So this is the first venue that's fully finished for the Olympics, and they expect to open it to the public by the end of the year. They've also completed construction on the Wukasong Ice Sports Center, which will be an ice hockey training venue. And I did not know this tidbit, but all ice rinks at Beijing 2022 will use carbon dioxide transcritical direct cooling technology. So they expect that will save more than 40% in energy consumption compared to an ice rink without that system. Nice. But I want to be at the meeting where the guy proposed making the water cube the ice cube. How come? Because he was just like, I have the best idea. Let's make the water cube the ice cube. And all these people mocked him. But then he's like, no, 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 no. We really got to do it. And he's just so proud of himself. What do you think the uh, chances are that they will make little mini ice cubes that have water you know those reusable ice cubes so that you like a little curling stone inside yeah or you know like you uh if you get an ice cube ice cube you put that in your freezer and then you can put the ice cube in your drink oh that has to be that like in rio people were talking about those reusable cups Mm -hmm. so now we need a reusable cup with the ice cube ice cube in the cup yeah. In the Asian 2022 cup. We got to get a commission on this stuff we come up with. Right. Uh, speaking of souvenirs, Beijing 2022 has released a commemorative coin set. So this is nine coins. They are all legal tender. They'll feature the w- logo. They've got the Great Wall. They've got mascot and sports on them. So it's a nice little set. We like a good coin collecting. Let's move on to Paris 2024. <laughs> The IOC is meeting next week. The executive board is meeting, and that's when Paris 2024 is going to have a proposed event schedule, and not necessarily sports, but the events. And we've reported a couple weeks ago that uh, Modern Pentathlon was going to propose a revised version of their event for Paris 2024. Now, the International Sports Shooting Federation wants to add another event called a Skeet Shooting Mixed Team, which is right up your alley. I know. I don't understand why shooting is divided to begin with. Oh. <laughs> May have to do slightly with the male ego not wanting to get beat by the girls. Maybe. But a Skeet Shooting Mixed Team would be one man and one woman. The ISSF said that it doesn't require additional days for competition, no additional venues, no additional equipment, and it would use existing athletes. So it's just another way, another opportunity for the shooting athletes to get a medal, another way for uh, shooting to get a little bit more exposure as a sport, and skeet shooting is very cool to watch. And that kind of fits in the parameters of we can add extra events, but we can't add extra athletes. So this is a way to get another event in and not try to go over the athlete quota. And if it moves the sports towards more gender equality, I mean, will it move shooting in the direction of we should be doing this without gender division? Maybe that's their little baby step in that direction. Maybe that would be very cool. I would like that. One sport that does not want to be added to the program is parkour. The Japan Times was reporting that parkour 
is unhappy about its proposal to be added to the program, they're under the umbrella of International Federation of Gymnastics. So FIG wants parkour in because parkour is urban and hip and cool. But parkour is one of these sports that doesn't really love having, I think, the international governance, so to speak. You know, they're right. kind of like skateboard, where skateboard's like, yeah, we're just we're just doing our thing. We don't need governance. Yeah, because anyone I know, and it has not been many, people who are into parkour, I think there was one, they're very independent-spirited people. I mean, they climb on buildings that they're not allowed to climb on. They're, you know, jumping across rails that would definitely say, do not cross this. Mm -hmm. So it's this very underground kind of feeling to it like surfing used to be or like skateboarding used to be and yet even snowboarding you know all these sports who are sort of alternatives to the very formulaic strict rules so I could see parkour resisting I just don't understand how you would even have a parkour competition like the only competitor that doesn't die on the course or break, you know, the fewest broken bones and bruises. Know, maybe, like, how do you score that? Maybe they just wall off a, a course on existing buildings and say, get through this as fast as you can. <laughs> I'm not sure. But there's got to be an avoidance of pedestrians and pigeons. That's part of parkour. Well, if you throw those out like in Super Mario, <laughs> they just sort of throw random things at you. Oh, here's a mushroom. Boom, smack you in the head with it as you jump over the railing. <laughs> We'll see. Maybe we don't even have to worry about it. We'll see what happens next week at the uh, board meeting. I would like to try parkour, though. You would? Okay. I would. Olympic Day is coming up. I know, but it's not an Olympic sport, so oh well. <laughs> they don't want me to try. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Milan Cortina 2026. The Milan Cortina Organizing Committee is going to have a contest to let the public choose its logo. This is inside. Oh, this can't end well. <laughs> this cannot end well. <laughs> I hope they have like an electoral college backup that's going to sort through the choices. They're going to have preferred designs to choose from. So okay. this will be, they will have these designs online during the San Remo Music Festival that's going to run from March 2 to 6. And then the logo will be revealed during a live television event called Olympic Night on Ray One. Because Nona's going to want something very flashy. It could be good. It could be very, very good. It could be very, very bad. It could be very, very tasteful. I mean, because I do no, like their... No, it can't. <laughs> I like their uh, bit logo, though. That's true. There's some class there. Oh, I'm not saying it's not class, but they, you know, the Milanese do like their flash. <laughs> Well, we will see. I'm excited now. What could happen? It couldn't be worse than London 2012. I know London 2012 has its lovers of that logo. But I also thought that logo was not very good and, and instantly dated itself. True. But I like sometimes when these things are, and I've said this before with the uh, uniforms, when they're of a place and time. Right, right, right. That you can easily identify that. Right, that you know it was in this country at this time. Oh, the Milanese are going to give me some good stuff. Let's hope so. I'm, Let's... I'm counting on it. Mark your calendars to see what those designs are. 
a little bit of LA 2028 news. Uh, Inside the Games is reporting that Uber is supposedly working on flying taxis. No. To be ready for use at LA 2028. <sighs> I don't know what to say about this either. That just can't end well. They'll hit the parkour athletes. <laughs> As they come in for a landing? Yeah. So it's going to be like a helicopter-like service called Uber Air. And they're working with two aircraft companies to create these vehicles. And Uber plans to construct skyports where passengers can board the aircraft. So it's going to be like a hub-to-hub service in the sky, supposedly. I mean, I, I also have no hope. The Jetsons promised us flying vehicles decades ago. We all need to be working on Rosie, not flying cars. <laughs> What the families of the world need right now is Rosie, not a flying car, because we can't go anywhere. We've got a little IOC news. The IOC announced that it is starting a formal procedure against the National Olympic Committee of uh, Belarus. As we reported earlier, some athletes felt they were not getting training dollars because they were uh, had opinions against the government. So... Now the, the formal investigation begins. We will keep you abreast on that because it could end up being like a Russia situation where Belarus does not get to be, is, would not be allowed to participate in the games, but the athletes could participate under an Olympic flag. And then finally, I heard first from our friend Carlos, but it's also been reported in the news that uh, Tibak is going to run unopposed for his second term. He will be president of the IOC until 2025, or as Carlos said, it's Bachman Thomas Overdrive until 2025, <laughs> which made me laugh so hard. What I love is he just made, that Carlos Groman just made a joke in his third language. Right. <laughs> and it was a good joke in his third language. I'm like, man, that is Olympic level language skills. <laughs> The good news is for us, and we get to say T-Bock for another four years. We're saying T-Bock forever. That's right. Okay, on that note, that will wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you're thinking about the Olympics and Paralympics. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Speaking of the, the Facebook group, Manu has been posting these amazing stories and questions i gotta dive into those this week two words roasted pigeons oh that's right that's right that's right. yeah you want to get on the facebook group to uh, talk about that so uh next week we will be talking about gender in sport with jackie silva of the let her run campaign and paralympian ness murby so you'll want to tune in for that as well as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.
we will see. I'm excited now. What could happen? <laughs>